Welcome. My name is Nathan Illman, and this is Beneath the Armour podcast, the place where healthcare professionals talk about what it's like to be them in this challenging field, and a place where listeners can come to feel connection through shared experience. Hello, welcome to the show. Today's show is all about compassion in healthcare. Now, I was working with a client recently who asked me what I meant by compassion. It's a word we're all familiar with, but let's clarify it a little. So compassion is a recognition of suffering in another person. So we use empathy to put ourselves in someone's shoes. And this is subsequently followed by an intention and action in service of relieving that suffering in some way. This would often take the form of gestures or words that embody kindness, gentleness, and are supportive. So first step with compassion is recognizing someone's suffering and then an intention to relieve that suffering. So compassion is not just about empathy. That's one component of it. There's also this motivation and desire to act in some way. And compassion can be directed towards other people, but also ourselves, hence self-compassion. And this looks slightly different, but essentially involves acknowledging that we are struggling or suffering and then we're kind to ourselves in some way, again through a gesture or perhaps kind or supportive self-talk. Anyway, why does this matter? Well, in today's episode, I talked to Professor Stephen Tresiak about his incredible book, Compassionomics. So Steve and his co-author, Anthony Mazzarelli, have tied together indisputable evidence from the research literature that improving compassion from healthcare providers improves a multitude of patient outcomes. It also reduces healthcare costs, reduces staff burnout, and is linked to clinical effectiveness. This is really, really compelling stuff that is drawn from the research literature stemming back to, I believe, the 1960s. So Steve was kind enough to talk to me and we dig into some of the findings from his systematic literature review, which formed the basis of this amazing book. And we also talk about his own personal journey of compassion in medicine. Before we get into the episode, just a small request that if you like the podcast, please consider sharing it with a friend. And also consider leaving a review on Apple Podcasts. It's really going to help spread the word of Beneath the Armour and sharing is indeed caring. Also, if you ever want to get in touch with me to let me know how you found the podcast or perhaps see if you want to come on to the podcast and have a chat with me, then you can email me on nathan at nathanillman.com. Okay, so without any further delay, let's get into this fabulous conversation with Steve Tresiak. So, um, Steve, you've written this fantastic book, Compassionomics, the revolutionary scientific evidence that caring makes a difference. Um, just to begin with, it'd be great if you could just give a bit of an introduction to kind of who you are and how you came to, to write this, this wonderful book. Sure. Thank you so much. So my name's Steve Tresiak. I am a professor and the chair of the Department of Medicine at Cooper University Healthcare and Cooper Medical School of Rowan University in Camden, New Jersey. I'm an intensivist by background, so I'm a specialist in intensive care medicine. So in addition to being a department chair uh, and a leader uh, in our organization, um, and we have about 250 faculty or so uh, in our department, uh, 
I am also a research nerd by background, spent 20 uh, years uh, or so doing resuscitation research in the ICU, and then pivoted the research program, uh, the scientific program, towards studying compassion in healthcare. And my colleague, Anthony Mazzarelli, uh, who's the co-CEO and president of our organization, Cooper University Healthcare, I we teamed up on a project to analyze the evidence that compassion for patients matters, not just in the conventional sense, not in the moral ethical sense or emotional sentimental sense, but matters in a, in a scientific way. So it's been known for ever that compassion matters in meaningful ways, but our question was, does compassion actually matter in measurable ways? In other words, is compassion just in the art of medicine where it's a nice to have, or are there also evidence-based effects belonging in the science of medicine? And what is the evidence? So we went on a two-year journey through the data and we curated all that evidence. There are over 280 original science research papers embedded in the pages of Compassionomics. And what we found is that compassion matters for patients, for patient care, and for those who care for patients, so our healthcare providers. Yeah, and the, the book is, I mean, there are so many different parts to it, right? And, and as, you, as, as you continue reading chapter after chapter, the evidence just stacks up and, and you do such a nice job of, of kind of weaving all of that in with some, some nice kind of stories um, from, from patients that I think you guys have worked with or colleagues have worked with as well. Um, so, so Steve, I'm really keen to know, you know, you obviously pivoted, like you said, from being this research nerd doing that, that previous stuff and that then focusing on compassion. Um, at, at what point for you did this kind of penny drop? Like, actually, wow, this is, I really need to focus more on this in, in your own practice. Was it whilst you were doing the, the systematic review or, or was it kind of before that? Really, the aha moment for me was when we started to amass all of this evidence. And some of these data go back decades. Um, and we're sure that at the time, these papers made a ripple or a splash, but they weren't really connected in such a way to make a wave. And, and when we started to amass all the evidence that compassion matters in, in measurable ways, then seeing all of it pushed together, it became like a tidal wave of data. And then that's when we had the aha moment and we knew that we had to write a book about it. Yeah, and what have you found? So since the book has been published, have you uh, have you found lots of people who've got in contact with you, so other doctors, physicians, to to let you know that they're convinced now by by the data? You know, we've re received some amazing messages from colleagues from far and wide who have shared with us that they had the same experience that I had. Uh, in the book or that I describe in the book of going through burnout and realizing uh, through all of the data and then through um, experience in, in doing your own N of one experiment, so to speak, of trying it out for yourself and testing the hypothesis about compassion, 
realizing that um, the secret to resilience is relationships. The secret to resilience is relationships. And, and that's not just relationships with patients. It's relationships with colleagues, family, everyone around you. Um, that isolation can be detrimental uh, and actually put someone at higher risk of burnout under the same amount of stress. And so the fulfillment that you get of connecting with patients that is really um, what the evidence supports. The evidence supports is that that's actually protective from burnout. So we got all of these these notes and cards and letters and actually just um, uh, colleagues of ours here at Cooper just telling us that they had the same experience. They tried it for themselves and that it began to make them feel better about what they do and feel better in their everyday work. Uh, and so that's been really powerful for uh for uh, for us to to have that sort of feedback and to realize that um, compassion is really making a difference, um, it's powerful. Yeah, it must be yeah, lovely and really reinforcing for you. Um, so, Steve, I'd be really keen to know for you on a day to day basis with the the patients you work with, with your colleagues, team members, staff. Um, how you demonstrate compassion so i think you know from my experience some of this stuff is people can't really they don't really know exactly what it looks like so you know what does compassion or empathy actually actually look like and you know you do explain that in the book and could you just mm-hmm. give us a few examples of, of how you demonstrate that and maybe as a leader how you kind of lead it in in sure. empathic and compassionate care so l- let me first talk about at the bedside and I'm not going to give anybody, and we don't do this in the book, we don't give you a checklist of things to do, right? Because mm-hmm. that's really not how compassion works. Everyone has to – this is just my opinion, by the way. You, you make your own human connection in, in different ways. That being said, there are three, um, three pivotal and just vital elements of mindset that have to be brought to the bedside. Mm-hmm in order to raise your game, so to speak, in compassion. The first is the realization that there is a robust evidence base behind compassion. So that's why we that's the why behind the book. And actually the book is a why. It's the why compassion actually matters or what's the evidence for that. Once you realize that there is as much of an evidence base for treating patients with compassion as the other things that we routinely provide uh, in medicine on a day-to-day basis, then you think differently about it. So number one part of mindset is recognizing the evidence base. Number two is all about time. So I think this is super important to talk about, so I'll just take a minute to do that. Yeah. So there was a striking number in uh, in, in our data uh, that we curated for Compassionomics, and that number was 56, 56. That was a proportion of patients uh, in a study a few years back from in the general, Journal of General Internal Medicine. The proportion of, pa- of sorry, not proportion of patients. It was pa- proportion of physicians, physicians who said that they don't have time to treat people with compassion. And it begs mm-hmm. a question, how much time does it actually take? So uh, we curated the evidence for that. And what we found is that of the five studies that have been um, published in the past, 
all five show that it's under 60 seconds to make a meaningful compassion connection with a patient. And in fact, um, uh, 40 seconds is really the most robust evidence that we have. It was a randomized controlled trial that found that 40 seconds of compassion was able to reduce in a measurable way on a well-validated scale of patient anxiety in cancer survivors. Now, if you've ever had cancer or someone close to you has had cancer, you know that anxiety is a pretty important outcome measure. Mm. So 40 seconds is all it takes. And um, some of my colleagues bristle at that when I say that (laughs) because they say, no, it doesn't. It doesn't take 40 seconds. There's no time dimension at all. You can go through your day with brusque efficiency, letting everybody know exactly how busy you are, or you can treat people with compassion. And if someone held a stopwatch to you, it'd be no different. So why is it that half, almost half of physicians, or more than half in the study that I cited to you, feel that they don't have time for compassion. And it goes back again to mindset. So number one, I said of mindset is knowing that there's a robust evidence base. So there it's evident, compassion is evidence-based medicine. Number two is recognizing that you actually do have enough time, right? So that's what we're talking about now. Why do we feel like we don't? So there was a pivotal, in my opinion, study done by colleagues from the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania in collaboration with the Department of Psychology. And what they tested was something called time affluency, time affluency. So that's time affluence is the feeling that you have plenty of time. You're not in a hurry. And you, and um, they randomized study participants to four different uses of time. Spending time on yourself, wasting time, getting an unexpected windfall of free time, or spending time helping other people. And of those four, there was only one that actually increased participants' feeling of time affluency. Which one was it? It was spending time on other people. So there's something about spending time helping other people that makes you feel differently about the time that you have. So the data supports that giving time gives you time. And so that's number two about mindset, is realizing that you do have time. And when you feel like you don't, that's probably a framing or a mindset challenge because you actually do. Number three is the realization that change is possible. Change is possible. So there are robust data to support that. Now, I used to think that people were either wired from compassion or they're not. It's in your DNA. It's in the fabric of who you are. But the reality, the reality is there is ample evidence both inside of healthcare. In fact, my colleagues and I published a paper in Plus One about that um, uh, just a couple of years back. But also evidence outside of healthcare that compassionate behaviors can, in fact, be learned. We're not talking about what somebody feels in their heart or thinks in their mind. We're talking about how they behave towards another person in a way that the other person can perceive it. Compassion can, in fact, be taught and learned, and you can, in fact, get a little bit better at compassion, but the key is that you have to have a growth mindset. You have to believe that compassion is a skill, not a trait, Mm -hmm. a skill, not a trait. And we know from the education domain, from Dr. Carol Dweck and colleagues, that 
the uh, growth mindset where you believe you can, in fact, get better, that's key to kids in, in education and, and, and getting better and having success over time. They've also found, Dr. Druck and colleagues, that a that a growth mindset is necessary for compassion. If you believe you can get better, then you will actually persist through difficulty and work hard to get better at compassion versus those who believe in a fixed mindset and believe they can't get better at compassion. They'll never work at it long enough, hard enough to actually get better. And and this is good news indeed because I'm definitely personally, I'm, I'm a work in progress, Nathan. So... Um, that is good news for me. So the, you asked how to get better at compassion. I actually think it's a mindset. It's a mm -hmm. mindset matter. One is evidence-based. Number two is you do have enough time. And number three is realizing that change is possible. And as a result of change is possible, I work hard at compassion every day. And thankfully, science shows that I can. Yeah, I mean, I I really agree with you around the the mindset stuff, and obviously that that is born out of the the research data. And I think you know you make a really good point of this in the book about uh, kind of physician or doctor kind of beliefs about different things. So whether it's time or beliefs about compassion, and I guess in terms of um, improving compassionate care in healthcare, this is a really key thing, isn't it? Kind of addressing those those limiting beliefs, whether it's being physicians in training or at some later stage. And I know that there are already some training programs, I, I believe, with empathy training, for example. Um, and you mentioned that there are, um, you know, there are ways in which we, we can train these behaviours in people. Um, but like you said earlier as well, I think when people then start to actually experience the power of it themselves in their day-to-day -day practice, it becomes it becomes reinforcing people want to do it more, right? Like, so I think it, as a psychologist, for me, I see it day to day with the, the patients I work with. You can kind of, you can just feel how powerful being compassionate towards someone else is. You can, you can see that kind of working in the therapy room, I guess, for, for doctors who are often busier doing lots of different tasks. Um, you know, they, perhaps they need a little bit more convincing to begin with, but you've obviously demonstrated and shown in your own own practice and own work that, that it works as well. Um, something I'm really keen to explore a little bit with you, Steve, is, is around self-compassion. So I guess there are, um, there's one thing kind of believing that being compassionate towards patients is, is going to help with, with their care. But then obviously you talk about, you know, part of the book around um, the crisis of burnout and how actually self-compassion is is really important for, for managing you know our own kind of um, emotional well-being and actually you know it's kind of essential that we're able to be kind towards ourselves in order to be able to have that kind of kindness and empathy for other people um, so I'd be interested to know about your own journey with self-compassion. I think you mentioned at the end of the book, this is something you've kind of been experimenting with a bit. You know, you obviously talk about the um, the kind of extant um, research data on, on self-compassion. So could you just talk a little bit about what role self-compassion has in your life? Sure. Well, can we, how about we talk about burnout in general first? Sure. Um, and how compassion can impact that because I, I think that we need to start there. So, mm. uh, you know, burnout is described as a, as a, um, as having three cornerstones essentially. So depersonalization, emotional exhaustion, and then the feeling that you can't make a difference. And 
Um, burnout is real. Um, I don't think there are many people left who doubt that. Uh, but uh, I believe burnout is real because I believe the data on that, but then also just through lived experience. So this is sort of where the the science meets the personal for me. So uh, I'm an intensivist and I essentially what we do in the ICU routinely uh, is is meet people and their families on the worst day of their life. Mm. You know, that's basically, you know, that's uh, commonplace. And after doing that for almost 20 years uh, as an intensivist, I came to the stark realization that I had every symptom of burnout myself. And I'll assure you, although you know this because you're a clinical psychologist, uh, I assure you that's not, I assure your listeners or your viewers that uh, it's not a good place to be. Mm -hmm. So what was I supposed to do? Well, I'm a research nerd, so I did the only thing I knew how to do is I went to the data, I went to the literature, and what I found in the literature was um, a collection of techniques that I put into the bucket of escapism, essentially. Escapism meaning uh, go on more vacation, um, go on more nature hikes, do yoga. I mean, all those things are great you know, um, necessary. And there's no doubt of, uh, I think in 2021 that work-life balance is, is, uh, vitally important, mm -hmm. but those escapism approaches to burnout to me, it, it just didn't compute because it, it, the premise is that if I just get away from my patients as much as possible, then everything will be okay. And that doesn't, that doesn't make any sense. Meaning if something doesn't fundamentally change at the point of care, um, I just thought that's where the solution had to be. So I became aware of abundant data that compassion can be a powerful beneficial therapy for the giver too. And this was striking to me because it was actually, at that point, it had become counterintuitive. And the reason why is, is, is in medical school training, as I'm sure, you know, other uh, health sciences training, there's a hidden curriculum that comes in through socialization. You know, it's not written down in any books, but you learn it in the halls and the call rooms of hospitals, you know, all across the country if, if you're trained as a physician. And what I remember distinctly being taught uh, when I was in medical school in the early 1990s was don't care too much. Don't care too much because too much caring, too much compassion burns you out. So I believed that for about, you know, almost 25 years mm -hmm. because that's what I was taught um, by senior physicians. When you go to the data and you look for the signal of the association between burnout and compassion, if what I was taught, if what I was taught was true, then you would see an association between burnout and compassion that was in the same direction. High compassion, high burnout, 
low compassion, low burnout. But what you see when you curate the evidence, and there was a systematic review on this a couple of years back, there is an association, but the preponderance of evidence shows an inverse association. Inverse. So high compassion, low burnout, low compassion, high burnout. What could explain that? Well, some people want to infer causation and just say burnout crushes compassion. But when you look at the totality of the evidence, you see that the most likely scenario, the most likely explanation for the pattern in the data is actually that people with low compassion are the most predisposed to getting burned out under the same amount of stress. Now, why would that be? Well, the short answer is we don't really know. But, but I have a hypothesis, and a hypothesis that is borne out also experientially. And that is when you have a compassionate connection with your patients, you get the fulfilling part of what it means to take care of people. You get the fulfilling part of medicine. Sure, you might be tired at the end of the day, but it's a good tired um, because you know that you've made that bond and you've impacted people in, in meaningful ways. If you don't have that compassion connection with patients and you don't have connections at all, you don't have relationships that are strong with your patients, you don't get the fulfilling part of what it means to take care of patients. Mm -hmm. And what you're essentially just left with is a really stressful job. That's it. So I becoming after becoming aware that um, the the evidence shows that compassion can be a powerful therapy for the giver too. I decided to test the compassion hypothesis for myself, what I call my N of one experiment. There was only one study subject and it was me. So I decided to very intentionally, very intentionally, because you must, this can't be a casual approach. It has to be very intentional. Mm -hmm. I tried to, to connect more, not less, care more, not less, lean in rather than pulling back. And that was when the fog of burnout began to lift for me. So that, it, it literally changed everything. And um, that was very powerful. Now, uh, you asked me uh, about self-compassion. Mm -hmm. And my understanding of self-compassion is goes along the lines of um, when you uh, experience failure, and you have those, you know, that soundtrack playing in your mind, right? Or those messages. Mm. And they're, they're telling you that you failed, right? What would your best friend say to you in that scenario, right? What would your best friend say to you? What would your closest family members say to you? Probably not the same messages that you're telling yourself, right? Probably something much more encouraging, much more forgiving, much more supportive, and much more hopeful. And while we are in those moments, if our um, that soundtrack that we play in our mind, because you, you never talk to anybody in the world in your life more than you talk to yourself, 
mm-hmm. right? If you if your messages match those, the same thing, the same message, that internal dialogue would match the same thing that your best friend, your closest family, the people who love you would say to you, then you're going to be uh, not so hard on yourself. Uh, and um, that is likely a really important part of resilience. So that's that's what I would say. So it sounds like you're, you've just kind of shifted your self-talk over time then, and it's, and it's actually that voice inside now is a little bit more kind of forgiving, friendly, kind, uh, in the way, like you said, like a, a friend might talk to you, or you might talk to a friend. Well, I'm working on it. Like I said, and I say every day, I'm a work in progress. Yeah. But the difference is I see it now. I see it now. And, um, you know, seeing it is uh, the first step. Um, but once you see it, then you can work hard at it every day. Absolutely. And that's part of uh, Kristen Neff's kind of three parts, isn't it, of, of self-compassion is kind of being mindful, just acknowledging the first stage is acknowledging that there's, you know, this is a difficult time or perhaps your mind is being um, is berating you or being quite critical. Um, well, it, it's great, Steve, to hear that, you know, you've, you've kind of going on your own personal journey with that. And it always is a work in progress, isn't it? It's something I practice myself, but, you know, it's not perfect. Of course, we, ha- we have this kind of uh, critical nature to our mind that is kind of inbuilt sometimes. Um, you know, it's like our mind is trying to help us in some way, maybe to try and motivate us. But obviously, that doesn't always work, does it? It can make us feel kind of bad about ourselves. Um, so, Steve, look, I know you, you haven't got much um, longer left. Last question. Um, I'd be really keen to know what what's your vision from here onwards? So I know that you're, um, you know, you're continuing to do research. Um, where would you like things to change the most in healthcare? And what are you what are you currently doing to, to make that happen? Sure. Um, thanks for the question, Nathan. And again, it's just been an honor to be on with you today um, on the show. So as it relates to compassion within healthcare, we're building the original science research program. Because although we curated 280 original science research papers uh, in Compassionomics, in the pages of Compassionomics, I uh, immediately realized as an investigator, as a physician uh, scientist um, by background, that there are so many more hypotheses to test mm-hmm. about the effects of compassion and um, uh, across so many different disciplines. So um, when does compassion matter? When does it not matter so much? When it matters, how much does it matter? In, in whom does it matter? Who are the responders uh, to the intervention? Um, who are the non-responders? Uh, what, you know, these, these sorts of things. So we're building an original science research program across many different domains. We've got uh, active studies, one in cancer, uh, we just finished a protocol in addiction medicine. Uh, we're also testing um, whether compassion is a healthcare disparity um, for for disadvantaged people, either by by uh, race or socioeconomic status or both. Um, there are many hypotheses to test, and we're just beginning to recognize that. Um, this is a field that we need to be very serious about, um, as serious as we apply, as we, as we approach 
any other discipline uh, under the domain of science and medicine. Um, the other thing that we're working on is that we realized um, that when all these messages came in about other healthcare providers having the exact same experience when they focus more on compassion for others and how it helped them and made them actually feel better. Dr. Maz, that's my colleague, Anthony Mazzarelli, Dr. Maz and I said, well, this, how could this just be true for healthcare providers? You know, this isn't like a doctor thing, right? It's, as you know, as a, as a, with your background in clinical psychology, that uh, compassion-focused therapy, not just self-compassion, but focusing compassion on other people is a, is a, um, um, there's a wealth of data that that is a, uh, it's not only good for your well-being, but it's good for your physical health. Mm. It's good for your mental health. It's even good for your quote unquote success. So we're now curating the evidence for that. Um, and, you know, about a year from now, we'll be able to tell that story in a different book. But um, uh, we're so within healthcare, within healthcare, we are focused on advancing the original science research program. Outside of healthcare, we are very keen, as you say, uh, to explore the effects of compassion for others outside of outside of healthcare in the general population because um, there is a compassion crisis in both in society and that spills over into healthcare. We don't have time today, but I've got tons of data to support what I just said, uh, that we have a compassion crisis. And if we all um, have an awakening to the power of compassion for others to benefit yourself um, we'll all be better off. And you can't game the system, right? You can't, you can't, uh, what we, what we're starting to find is that, uh, it has to be authentic and pure in, in, in genuine in order for you to feel the own effect, feel the effects. Um, but when you do, uh, it can be a powerful therapy. And so it's, um, it, I'm interested in discovering the extent to which it can be um, uh, not just a, a self-help therapy, but it can be an important key for leadership uh, in uh, organizations. And um, so those are the things that we're exploring. Well, I just want to say thank you so much for your contribution to the field already. And I'm really excited about what you've just said there. And I look forward to kind of following your work. And, you know, you've been a real inspiration to me um, already from your book. And, and talking to you today has been very inspiring for me. Um, I'd love to have you back on the show maybe sometime and we can talk about where things are at with your, your research program. I'd be happy to. Thank you so much, Nathan. It's been an honor to be on the show. Thanks, Steve. You have a, a good rest of your day and um, all the best. Hello again, listeners. This conversation was such a pleasure for me. Being in Melbourne's great. The time difference to much of the rest of the world is a killer. I was talking to Steve at 6.30am here, but it was so worth it. He is such a powerhouse of research knowledge and I imagine an incredible physician, educator and many other things. 
So Steve's got a TEDx talk you can watch, as well as his book, which I'll put a link to in the show notes, as well as his Google Scholar page for all of his research publications. For anyone working in healthcare, and especially for people who are sceptical of whether using empathy or compassion actually works, then I think the book should be essential reading. They literally cite hundreds of studies that confirm the importance of compassion. It's really compelling stuff. Before I go today, as a reminder, if you enjoyed this episode, then please consider telling a colleague or even your whole team. I've got some really exciting episodes planned in coming weeks and months. Having recently had a baby, it's inspired me to take a bit of a tour into the world of being a midwife in the community, so keep your ears to the ground for some coming episodes in the next month or two. To make sure you get the latest episode, then why not subscribe on your favourite podcatcher or on YouTube where I also post these episodes. So thanks again for tuning in and I'll be back soon for another episode of Beneath the Armour. Bye.